Welcome to the Eastern Shore. I'm Brock Winstead. Today on the show, writing, fighting, and reflection. Ishmael Reed is a prolific author, probably best known for his satirical works that attack or at least complicate the things that many people hold dear in American culture and politics. He's the author of novels like Mumbo Jumbo and Japanese by Spring, plays like Mother Hubbard and Hubba City, and many, many other works of fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. He's received, among other awards, a MacArthur Fellowship in 1998. He taught at UC Berkeley for 35 years. And at 77, he is still teaching and writing and commenting on the changing world around him, including the city of Oakland, where he has lived since 1979. Earlier this summer, Reed's latest book was published, The Complete Muhammad Ali. It's a biography of sorts of the famous boxer, constructed primarily through interviews with people who helped put Ali in the context of his times. In the book, Reed writes that he treats Ali not just as a boxer, but as a human mirror for the 60s and a cautionary tale for the 70s. And as Reed has done with many other subjects during his career, he complicates our understanding of this man who many still refer to just as the greatest. I talked to Ishmael Reed recently about his latest book, Muhammad Ali, the parallels he sees between writing and fighting, and the changes he's watching unfold in his Oakland neighborhood, which is not far from mine. Here's Ishmael Reed on the Eastern Shore. Ishmael Reed, thank you so much for sitting down with me. Well, thank you. Your latest book, The Complete Muhammad Ali, just came out in July. I might find it in the biography section of a bookstore, but it is not a conventional biography. It doesn't just tell the story of Muhammad Ali's life in, in or some part of it in a linear way. And I'm thinking that that unconventional structure might have come from an unconventional approach. So how did you approach the task of writing about Muhammad Ali's life and his impact? Well, you know, it's, it's gone through a number of drafts. I was invited to write this book by Shea Earhart, 
who was uh, Jacqueline Kennedy's editor or partner at Doubleday. I started out uh, with a deadline of a year. And when was that? That was 2003. She was fired by Crown, the publisher. And so the book actually became an orphan. Finally, they hired an editor who was recommended that I do uh, something called The Fighter and the Writer, in which I would mesh my autobiography with his biography. That was awkward. That didn't work. So finally, uh, they abandoned the book. Crown Publishers abandoned the book. And Robin Philpot of Baraka Books, a publisher in Montreal, mm-hmm. I approached him and he decided he would, he would publish the book. Uh, and this followed historic, a historical pattern. In, 18, in the 1850s, uh, black fugitive slaves went to Canada and a man named Benjamin Drew compiled an anthology of their work and their uh, experiences. And mem- it was like memoirs. It included Harriet Tubman. And they were able to say things about slavery that they weren't able to say down here. So I wrote a book, a novel called Flight to Canada, mm-hmm. but I n- never knew that my career would be sustained <laughs> in Canada. It's sort of like a joke. Uh, and so I'm able to say in Canada what the mainstream finds unwelcome in the United States. They require that black writers be really those with the least resistance. In other words, very, very toned down, like uh, some writers appealing to a liberal constituency on the basis of shared Judeo-Christian values. Mm-hmm. So uh, this works out very well. So the complete Muhammad Ali had a, a bit of a strange journey from conception to publication, and your approach changed along the way. Ended up finding a publication home in in Montreal. Mm-hmm. You seem to be making an argument in the book that's kind of a yes and argument. Yes, Muhammad Ali was a great fighter, and he had he had an important impact on civil rights and anti-war movements in America. And he's a complicated human being, and the sources of, in particular, his civil rights and anti-war impact have been neglected or dismissed by other writers. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what you were trying to get across in the book in that vein. Well, he's not a leader. He's a follower. Uh, I interviewed Marvin X, you know, uh, sort of like uh, one of the black nationalists with depth who uh, helped to inaugurate black studies at San Francisco State. Marvin X talks about a trip to Chicago where he wanted to interview Muhammad Ali. Then Muhammad Ali goes in and has a conference with uh, his mentor, Elijah Muhammad, the leader of the Nation of Islam. And then Ali comes out and says, well, he told me not to do the interview. Gave him $100. So... At the point when he was a member of the Nation of Islam, he merely parroted what Elijah Muhammad and other Muslim leaders said. Now, the, the authors of the other hundred books or so, who are fans mostly and groupies, dismiss uh, the Nation of Islam as a bunch of lunatics without exploring the influence they had on, on Muhammad Ali. So he was, so all the, the Muslims were instructed to take conscientious uh, or objector status following Elijah Muhammad's refusal to fight in World War II, which is, very, which is a serious war. I mean, Vietnam, public opinion, eventually uh, came around to Muhammad Ali's point of view. That was a war that they, they still hold up as, uh, you know, the victorious yeah. uh, war of America's triumph over evil. And not only uh, did he refuse to fight in the war, went around the country making pro-Japanese speeches. Now, I didn't know until I started, you know, writing this book that there were more 
black members of Japanese fronts than communist fronts. And there were even uh, Japanese agents who came over here and collaborated with the Nation of Islam, which was once in Detroit, then, then to Chicago. And the idea was that uh, uh, the Nation of Islam followers would refuse to fight the Asiatic black man based upon uh, Japanese defeat of the Russian fleet, which was uh, seen as a triumph of a colored nation over a white nation, 1905. And he was, he was not the only one who was advocating for Japan. Japan. Uh, George Schuyler, who later became a conservative, W. Du Bois and others were her heralding that Jap the victory of uh, Japan. And uh, so that, that was the mood of, at the time. So Muhammad Ali was following that precedent. Now, I interviewed uh, Sam X or Abdul Rahman. He's the one who told Muhammad Ali to tell the reporters that no Vietnamese ever called me what N-word. Muhammad Ali didn't know what to say because he's a boxer, he, not an intellectual. He asked, uh, as, uh, as, the, as uh, Sam X described the scene to me, the women were cooking for, the Muslim women were cooking for Ali and these reporters are outside. He came and said, what should I tell him? So he instructed him. So there's another point of view that says that Ali took this position because he was intimidated by the, the, the enforcers in the Nation of Islam. Sugar Ray, uh, Sugar Ray Robinson uh, made, that, made that comment, said that Ali was afraid of them, Robert Lipset and others. So there are two points of view. But he was really under the instruction of uh, uh, Elijah Muhammad, and that's why, uh, why he abandoned uh, Malcolm X. And the nationalists, the black nationalists, who, who never get their points of view in anywhere, you know what I mean? The black nationalists whom I interviewed said, we'll never forgive him for that. They will never forgive Muhammad Ali for turning his back on Malcolm X. So your book is in part about how he was a complicated human being, as are mm -hmm. we all, but not just that he might have had personal peccadilloes, whatever those might have been, but that he was, for a time, directly influenced to the point of being controlled by Elijah Muhammad and the, the Nation of Islam, and that Mainstream America doesn't want to wrestle with that mm. in term in their in their consideration of Ali's legacy. Well, they 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 uh, will not acknowledge that Nation of Islam was a religion, and since all religions are based upon suspicion of, of disbelief, they could be a religion. Whatever you say is a religion is a religion. So uh, they never explored. There was always a misunderstanding about the Nation of Islam. For example, the police are the ones who monitor us. They monitor our culture. I mean, you know, they, they monitor, you know, our comings and goings. Uh, they described uh, the Nation of Islam as voodoo cult. <laughs> Jack Newfield, whom I interviewed, the great uh, sports writer, uh, he dismissed uh, Elijah Muhammad as a cult racketeer. I thought it was much more complicated than that. Yeah, there were thugs in the Nation of Islam because they were recruiting in prisons. But there are also intellectuals who are also members of the Nation of Islam. Now... Elijah Muhammad's great-grandson, great Khalil, is uh, head of the Schomburg Library. And his uh, grandson, Ozzy Muhammad, uh, won a Pulitzer Prize for the New York Times. So, I mean, and, the, and the, I'm told that the, the person who designed their agricultural uh, industry had a Harvard degree. So, I mean, it's more complicated than just dismissing them as thugs. Now, on the other hand, uh, I interviewed uh, three of uh, Africa's top intellectuals and writers, Voloshenka and uh, Chinwezu and uh, Nuruddin Farrar, 
uh, and uh, they have a different take on Islam than stateside Americans, black Americans who change their names to Islam. And so uh, Malcolm X and, and uh, Muhammad Ali went to Mecca, and they said, well, you know, they changed their minds. They found white Muslims. This, you know, American white men just became Muslims. I mean, everything would be fine. It's religion brotherhood. Africans on the continent, they see uh, uh, Islam as an invader's religion, extracontinental invasion, and uh, one that's a racist religion. So I, so I try to balance it out. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, it was Elijah Muhammad who gave Cassius Clay the name Muhammad Ali. Yeah, well, he told him to give up the name when he went back to boxing. He says, call, your name, call yourself Cassius. Right. There's um, a lot of ambiguity there. I okay. mean, he sort of put him out and then maybe not so put him out. But he, he said, you know, he said when, when he returned to, to fight, to the fighting business, uh, he said it was just a spectacle to, for entertaining a white man. I think Elijah Muhammad is probably more complicated than any of the characters, and even more so than Muhammad Ali. But I think that uh, there, there hasn't been a balanced uh, biography written about him. Well, that's one of the interesting things I thought about about your book. In the introduction, you, you give a bit of an overview of, of Muhammad Ali's life and some of the themes that you're going to cover in the chapters that follow, and you talk about people you interviewed. But then the first chapter of the book, the first several paragraphs are about Elijah Muhammad. The first well, sentence is well, about Elijah Muhammad. Well, this nasty hatchet job they did in Publishers Weekly. <laughs> uh, they said, well, you spend a lot of time on that. Uh, in a book uh, authored by his daughter. Ali's daughter. Uh, yeah. He says the most important thing that happened to him was joining Islam, even more so than boxing. I mean, Emmanuel Stewart, the trainer, who I interviewed, the great trainer who managed the Klitschko brothers and a lot of other cha- champions, I interviewed him in Las Vegas. He said that uh, Muhammad Ali as a boxer was finished after Foreman, that he should have quit after Foreman. Because after that, he got involved with a decadent crowd, these uh, Bundini and these, these characters and uh, camp followers. I mean, we went to, when he went to Manila to fight the thriller Manila with Joe Frazier, that 30 people went along. He's picking up their bills. I mean, at the, at the end of his career, he's broke and sick. But Emmanuel Stewart as a box, says that as a boxer, he should have quit after uh, Foreman, after the triumph over Foreman, because those three years did a lot of damage to him, the three years in exile. Uh, Ron Lye said that, uh, you know, when he came back to boxing, uh, you could hit him, and he got hit a lot. And one of of the crazy things that he required in the gym was that these uh, people like Larry Holmes hit him as hard as they could because he felt that they would do something about the threshold for pain. So he's damaged. He got damaged for that. He t- just took a lot of hits. He became like Marciano, depending upon power shots. I mean, Marciano quit because he got hit so much. But he, you know, but he could. He had a power punch, and he could, you know, knock somebody out. But sure. along the way, he got touched a lot. Yeah, it took a lot of abuse. Mm-hmm. So you are, in a sense, trying to take Muhammad Ali at his word. If he says the most important thing in my life was when Absolutely. I joined Islam, yeah, it, you thought, well, uh, l- let's tr- take that seriously and and really investigate what that meant for his life. Well, all the other books get, do a summary of the, of the fight. I leave that up to trainers. I don't know anything about boxing. I mean, I watch boxing, but I interviewed boxers and I interviewed trainers, and uh, you know, let them talk, and because there's always a split between the boxers and the critics, the sports announcers. Take that Floyd Mayweather fight. I mean, I read in the paper that people are trying to get their money back on that fight with Pacquiao. The, fi- the fighters, uh, Lennox Lewis, uh, Roy Jones Jr., Paul Magliani, they all praised Mayweather's performance. The sports writers and the sports commentators, uh, you know, criticized the performance. 
So there's always been a split between. So I went to uh, Floyd Salas, who's, uh, who was uh, uh, at the uh, Cal boxing team, a coach. I went to Emmanuel Stewart. You know, I went to a number of people who actually were in the ring. Mm -hmm. That's the same way I approached the, the fight in 1978. I covered the fight for uh, between Spinks and uh, Ali in 1978 in New Orleans for the Village Voice. I talked to the trainers. I talked to the boxers. So you've, you've watched boxing. You've paid some attention to it for a while. Do you consider yourself a boxing fan? Yeah, I'm a boxing fan. Are you the kind of person who has a, a favorite boxer, like a person might have a baseball team they root for? Yeah, well, my favorite boxer is Sugar Ray Robinson because that's, that's the boxer who was active when I was growing up. Uh -huh. And Joe Lewis. Did you ever box? Uh, no, okay. no. Never wanted to? Well, when I was a kid, I was boxing. Uh, yeah. But uh, I never wanted to. I, yeah. I'm fighting on paper. Uh -huh. well, I, I so, call my book Writing is Fighting 37 Years of Boxing on Paper. Right, so that book published in uh, 1988. Yeah. Um, that phrase, Writing is Fighting, that comes from Muhammad Ali. Yeah, it sure does. I mean, they, they attribute it to me, but I tell them it's come, it comes from Muhammad Ali because when he uh, signed up for his autobiography, The Greatest at Random House, he said, they, they said well, how are you a boxer going to fight, going to write? He said, well, Writing is Fighting. So explain the parallels to me there that you see between, and well, Maybe where Ali was coming from when he said that, but also how, how you see it. What are the parallels between the two? Well, I mean, critics say that. I mean, uh, when uh, Short Time in New Orleans, Old New Orleans was published, Mel Watkins said that I had, I was, you know, I, I had the same qualities, I, you know, the same like a bee, that praise, uh, as Ali and other critics have compared my work to uh, Roy Jones Jr. Uh, when I moved down here, they started saying Mike Tyson. So I still use that as an analogy, as a metaphor for the kind of writing I do. Can I tell you something your book reminds me of? Mm. Kurt Vonnegut was a really important writer for me, in part because of when I first started reading. I, I picked a book of his almost at random off of a, a shelf of paperbacks in a bookstore one night. It wasn't any of the, the better-known works of his. It happened to be the last novel that he ever wrote, Timequake. Mm -hmm. And in the prologue to that book, he kind of tells the origin story of the book. He talks about how he spent nearly a, a decade writing a book, a novel called Timequake, and he finished it in early 1996. And when he was done, he, he looked down at it and thought, this doesn't work. This novel never wanted to be written in the first place. Mm -hmm. He had just turned 73, and mm -hmm. his father had died at 72. Mm -hmm. And he felt like he was past his prime. He didn't know what to do with himself, didn't know what to do with the book. And so he said, well, I'm going to fillet the fish and throw the rest away. Mm -hmm. And so he took the core of the story of Timequake, the novel he had written, and wove it into a new work that was sort of half novel, half memoir. Some of this story that he'd originally conceived of for the novel, along with stories about his own life and uh, comparisons, some of them explicit between himself and his stand-in character in that book. And in reading through your Ali book, not to say that you tried to write a book uh, about Ali and it failed and you had to start over, but you are a character in your own Ali book. Yes, and, and you some of the some of the time it's just you saying what you were doing leading up to an interview. Right, right. But you do also draw some explicit comparisons between yourself and Ali, and not just about style, but about your your lives. Mm -hmm. You said that there was a time when this project was a combination autobiography and biography of Ali, but that was awkward. What was awkward about that? Well, it didn't work. It didn't mesh. And because although we have things in common, there, there are things that separate us. Uh, so what I did was I took the uh, memoir parts out and started all over again mm. and kept it as a 
a work about Ali. So I, I've been doing that recently, and critics get annoyed, for example, in uh, Oh, Japanese by Spring, which got me, you know, trips to Japan and China. The book was, the critics were confused about that book here. I studied Japanese, and Japanese by Spring opened the door to Asia for me. That, that's another way I've solved this, this problem of, of being an American writer and, like, begging to be token, like, like auditioning to be a, the token, uh, you know, expanding my audience. Uh, so um, I did Japanese by Spring. I introduced myself as a character because when... You know, the old Jefferson thing, Jefferson, uh, Thomas Jefferson's comment about, you know, blacks can't get above the narrative or whatever he said. A novel written by a black person is seen as not only like a, a uh, the author's treat like a, an, uh, an informant and in, in anthropology in that all the characters or the lead characters the same as the... So I've separated myself from the other character by introducing myself as a character. So made, I've been doing made it clear that, that absolutely, you are not do, this other Absolutely, thing. I've been doing that. And the critics get annoyed, but painters do that and... Put in, you know, intercede in their work, put the put themselves in, and uh, filmmakers, and so you know, I, I continue in my new novel. I do that. You said, yeah, you have many similarities with Ali, but there are things that separate you. Mm -hmm. What do you think are the most important similarities? Well, I think I think both of us are probably uh, uh, confident. I mean, he, you know, I mean, even in the state he's in now, you can see that he's still. Well, let's put it this way: about half the people I interviewed for the book since 2003, who were concerned about his health, are dead. So the guy is a survivor, and I consider myself to be a survivor. As a matter of fact, uh, I remember an incident in East Village where uh, somebody said something about my name. I said, well, you know, Ishmael's a survivor. Come on, Moby Dick. So I'm still around, knock on wood. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm still alert, and I'm still writing books and teaching and doing a number of other things. And I think he survived all the people who were... Uh, Concern, a lot of the people were concerned about his health. Joe Frazier. I mean, Joe Frazier made fun of him. said, you know, he mumbles to himself. He can, you know, make fun of his disability. Yeah, yeah. He went to Joe Frazier's funeral. Yeah. So that's an example of it. Uh, you said earlier that you had the, the collection of your work published in 88, Right in His Fight, and you talked about how your, your writing style has been compared to different fighters along the way, but how it changed after you moved. Well, so, it, be, it became, uh, it came, became more combative and, uh, you know, the neighborhood changed. What's things I've seen on this block where we had shootouts yeah. here on this block. So so we were sitting in your in North Oakland yeah. in the, what is this, Santa Fe neighborhood? Yeah. You moved here in 1979. Yeah. In the Ali book, in the introduction, you wrote that you found yourself in 1979 living in the kind of neighborhood that I grew up in and watching the neglect of hardworking citizens yeah. by public and private institutions. So tell me about what you found when you first got here. Well, indifference from downtown to, you know, I came from El Cerrito where, uh, you know, the neighborhoods were safe and the police saw to it that they were safe. Mm -hmm. Here, we had drug operations. The drug operations began in 1989, about the time that the Contras started bringing crack into the these areas. I mean, people neglect to mention that when they talk about the homicides that are taking place in the inner city. These are homicides that take place uh, in the form of illegal capitalism, you know, because people have been shut out of the markets and jobs, manufacturing is down. And so 62% of the, the, the murders that happen in these neighborhoods uh, are a result of drug, you know, arguments are drug-related. So uh, 89 was when it happened here. And we had a crack house across the street. And since then, there have been two others. I, I call it a form of fascism because when you live in a, a block where there are crack houses, uh, you're not safe. Uh, and so there, was, there have been shootouts here on this block. So uh, you, you wrote a little bit about this in a couple of essays that were 
Well, I don't know what they were for originally. I, I, I found them in West of the West, mm-hmm. the essay collection published in 89. And you've seen it through. I mean, you've been here. You haven't moved. Uh, you saw it through. What what made you stick? Well, uh, I like the house here. Mm-hmm. And uh, I felt that if anybody was going to move, they were going to move. They, they left. And, you know, we waited them out. There was a gang here. That uh, now this is very interesting. The police didn't. Uh, the, the police, well, maybe one or two, but the police not, did very little to alleviate what was happening in this neighborhood. They really didn't care about it. That's one time I call this neighborhood maroon, like the maroons were people who went on, who escaped from slavery, lived among the Indians, and they had their kings and queens. You know, so I was like the king, small K, of this neighborhood. I would argue on behalf of this neighborhood in downtown. So I wrote a series of articles, in 1989, Willie Hurst, uh, the third. Uh, had me assign writer in residence at the Examiner, mm. and I wrote a series of articles about the state of the situation on my block because we went downtown and they they didn't seem to be interested in doing anything about it. So finally, one of the big developers called me to and my spouse to uh, have dinner with the mayor, and uh, he said I was losing the city a lot of money with these articles. So you know, I had to clean this up. The police did nothing. Downtown did nothing. It was actually sort of like. Uh, semi-vigilante action on the part of a couple of neighbors who got this thing cleaned up. And the last guy who cleaned the neighborhood up had, was a ex-convict from uh, Pelican Bay. Now, that's ironic. We had a gang that was terrorizing the neighborhood. It was led by one of the leaders was a Vietnamese kid. Now, that, there goes another stereotype. When you, when you see the image of uh, blacks in the media, they're the ones who are selling drugs. It's more complicated than that. And I wrote a play called Hover City about my experience here, mm-hmm. in which I talked about the chain of, chain of distribution, the chain of drug distribution, and the suppliers, and how the banks launder the money, and how the real estate uh, interests use that to bust up these neighborhoods. For example, uh, uh, some of the drug gangs intimidate some of the older residents so much, they, they sold their homes, and that led to gentrification. Now, my daughter and I got a crack house torn down, down the street here, which was a, a, a location of prostitution and drug selling. It took us a couple of years, a few years, because the landlady had more power, than, the absentee landlady had more power than we had. And so finally, the neighborhood liaison, he really helped us get it, get it done. What happened? It's been gentrified. Uh, and now the last drug dealer to leave the neighborhood, this guy who kept all the other drug dealers out, cleaned the neighborhood up, gave us some peace and quiet. He sold his house for $162,000. Some guy bought it, flipped it, brought in some cheap uh, labor, and sold it for about six, dollars $700,000. That's down the block. So the neighborhood's being gentrified like all of North Oak. And, and you've written and then talked about that uh, as well. There was an interesting parallel, I thought. In one of those stories of yours about, about this neighborhood that was collected in, in West of the West, you talked about uh, drug dealers at the time, late 80s, walking around with pit bulls. Well, we got pit bulls here with the gentrifiers. Right, So, and you mentioned that in the Ali book as well. That, uh, but the symbol is still the same. Yeah, well, they, 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 they're both used by group, both groups uh, to intimidate. See, I know what those drugs... I saw a woman, this is a white girl walking down the street with a bloodhound. I said, oh, you, know, you look at bloodhounds, you think... Uh, the, that's like uh, sets off a central response mechanism, like a, a turtle trying to avoid, you know, birds be eaten or something. But you know the history of blacks with bloodhounds. So uh, I think this. I think uh, somebody somebody called it uh, Columbusing, where they're coming into places like Adeline, Alcatraz neighborhood and renaming it Lorne or something. I talked to somebody at the Black Repertory Theater over there, but a lot of the people who are, who are resisting this invasion. 
by the dot-comers are white. As a matter of fact, uh, Sean Vaughn, who uh, runs the, one of the producers at uh, the Black Rep Theater, said that uh, they have meetings where a lot of the people who, who are resisting this, this uh, gentrification are white. And one of the best articles, I just put it on Facebook, one of the best articles I've read about it was written by a young white kid, a white kid who talked about how old Oakland is disappearing under the, under the invasion of these dot coms. I read that, the guy from 38th Notes. When people talk about gentrification in a city like Oakland, uh, a lot of the talk is about displacement, of course. There's a sense of loss there. Something is being lost. What do you think is being lost? Well, I think there was probably more of a, a family atmosphere on this block when blacks uh, occupied the block. We all knew each other and cooperated. And my uh, spouse assisted the lady next door. They died. Both of them. They were here when we uh, moved in. The uh, Oldhams, and she sort of looked after her in the, the last stages of her life. And uh, and Mrs. McClure, the, the McClures lived next door. I wrote about him. I mentioned him. I talked about him on NPR. Hmm. He was uh, worked uh, in, the, in the in the shipyards, and uh, would, would give kids gum every morning. They come here, yeah. place be crowded with kids coming to get gum from. Them. They called him the Gum Man. Interesting character. He raised his kids, and they went to college. A lot of the kids in this block went to college, or they, or they, uh, you know, did very well. So that counted the stereotype. Now we had crack operations on this block, but they were all kind of. It was like the old time of segregation, where you had you know, upper class, middle class, and people with no class live in the same neighborhood because they're segregated. So, so but that was more, we knew everybody's name and everybody. Uh, so my point was that I lived in Oakland. Now, I was here with the, where the mayor was black, the uh, head of the symphony was black. Uh, Robert Maynard uh, was editing the Oakland Tribune, and uh, it's like Black Panthers kind of opened the way for that when they went legit. They elected uh, Lionel Wilson, the mayor. Uh, so I said, you know, Oakland is a city of diversity, and when it stops being a city of diversity, I might move out of here because I lived in Hanover, New Hampshire, where I was like the only black person, right? I, I was joking with Philip Medora. You can't take a joke. Yeah, KPFA, serious guy. I said I might be the last black uh, person uh, living in Oakland. And he took that literally. He said, oh, well, you, that'll never hurt. You know, something like that. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, I meant some. There was an element of truth in that. Is that I do not want to live in a place where it's like a like people. There's a sameness, homogeneity, or whatever they call it, a sameness, because I lived in a town like that and I was treated very well, although very few blacks to talk to. But in Dartmouth, Hanover, I mean, you know, uh, that's a very comfortable place for me. So if uh, you know it comes to a place where you know this begins to resemble like uh, what's happening in New York which has become like Disneyland or, uh, you know, some of these other cities, I'll move back east. Hmm. Niagara Falls. <laughs> back, to, back to Buffalo. Yeah. What do you think happens to this neighborhood in the next 10, 15 years? Yeah, I think it's probably going to be an all-white neighborhood. And we get along with, uh, there's some whites who've been here, including my wife. There, she was probably the only one on the block here for years. When you moved in. Yeah, for years. So there, there's a white couple that lives on the street, very friendly person. But most of them avoid eye contact with us and just avoid us, the ones who live in the street. You know, the media teaches white people to fear of blacks. I mean, if you look at six, I mean, that's, that's their product, to shame and to raise, you know, uh, raise hatred against unpopular groups, Muslims, Hispanics. That's their job. They make money with that. 
So if you look at the six o'clock news, the first five or six stories about black people messing up, robbing places, or, you know, because it's the West, we get a night off and they do Hispanics, or they do make an Asian American gang once in a while. So we get like, not like the East, we get a vacation. Maybe a little break, yeah. Well, and that maybe gets us back to Muhammad Ali, who is, mm-hmm. and some of what you said earlier about tokenism. I mean, he is, he is held up, he is this, this paragon mm-hmm. that's held up in contemporary media. Because he's been humble. That's what the black people said in the book. And he's not boasting and he's not annoying them with a lot of, uh, you know, signifying and stuff. So In a sense, because he has lost his oh, voice. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, he's lost his voice. So now he, as uh, Jill Nelson, one of the contributors said, now we can be friends, you know, so I'm, like the hip whites that I, whom I interviewed in the book, people like Russell Banks, the novelist, and Dan Halpern and others, they noticed, they, they agree that uh, this affection is so, so like phony. And uh, other black people were really amazed when I told them that he'd been moving uh, to the right since uh, Reagan. He endorsed Reagan. And then he accepted that prize from, or some award from George Bush. I mean, Medal of Freedom, I think. Yeah, I think, wow. Remember Eartha Kitt going to the White House and, you know, uh, scolding... Uh, the first lady for the Vietnam policy, and they, FBI followed her for the rest of her life. So, uh, you know, he, he's become more, you know, people say he's just become a puppet of his wife, Yolanda. Other people say she's saved his life. When you set out to write the book, what did you think of Ali at the time? I was going to write a book about a hero. I ran into Ali. I was uh, in New Orleans. I was going through a door, and he was coming out with Veronica. Just as nobody else was around. I said, I said, the greatest man in the world. I mean, I, I thought I was going to write a book that would be another, you know, fan tribute, which is like the other books, groupies and fans and all that. Uh, but then I started interviewing people and uh, doing research and found that my book sort of like strikes the middle course between the, you know, 90 or so books that are just fan worship books and a book like uh, Mark Cram, for example, his book about Manila, where he depicts Ali as like a malicious buffoon. And Jack Cashel, I think his name is, who wrote Sucker Punch. <laughs> he accuses uh, uh, Gerald Ford and Ali of losing the war in Vietnam. I mean, you know. Mm. So it strikes a middle course. And and talks about the hypocrisy and some of the other problems. Part, part of what you're saying with the book is that when, when, when people hold him up and write hagiographies of him, and, and they are ignoring the, the people and the forces that produced him, that, that allowed him to play the role he played that we now look look back Well, they also, uh, you know, they also, uh, David Remnick and uh, in his book, uh, The King of the World, and then Muhammad Ali, Life and Times by Hauser, which was supervised by Yolanda Ali. Now, they, you know, they, they don't mention the criminal elements, like what happened in uh, New Jersey when uh, the King of Heroin on the East Coast lent him his house. Some, some of the people I talked to there uh, including Sean Griffin, said that they use him as a front for their criminal activities. His criminal is ties to uh, Howard Smith, who arranged the uh, largest embezzlement in uh, the history of Wells Fargo, and Richard Hirschfield, and some other people who who were criminal, who were you know outside the law. But he benefited from his association with them. That, that stuff is left out. His uh, treatment of women, you know, he sort of like he became a party animal after Foreman. I mean, that's what Emmanuel Stewart said. That, Stop training. I said, if I wanted to do a statue of Ali, I would do something like Hans Christian Anderson with him, you know, with a lot of kids around him, because he's a very generous person. And uh, there are like like some anecdotes that are very moving in the book about some kid had cancer and uh, Ali went. So the guy is really big-hearted, generous person. But he, I think he got in 
got in league with some unsavory characters. You went into it over 10 years ago. thinking you were going to write a book about a hero. Mm-hmm. And out of your research and interviews came this more complicated story. Mm-hmm. Do you kind of wish you, you hadn't found that more complicated story? Oh, no. Some of you wish that you still had just the hero? No, I think this is all part of the record. That this gives a, uh, a different version for history. Uh, that even people whom we consider to be great have flaws. And you cannot overlook those. And now you have written the book that deals with those flaws. Well, well, the virtuous side and the flaws. I mean, it's balanced in the sense that uh, there there are testimonies from his admirers, like uh, Harry Balafani, Reverend Jesse Jackson, and there are those uh, who who don't admire him so much, like the black nationalists. So you have written the book that attempts to present both sides of the man. Yeah, absolutely. Or all sides of the man. But finding it difficult to get sort of get traction in, in mainstream press about oh, that picture. Yeah, yeah because uh, uh, the mainstream press can only uh, uh, tolerate one black writer at a time. They're, they're afraid of a cerebral uprising. This is why, this is why you, you hear more about like, uh, like uh, gangster rap and some of these terrible lyrics. And I mean, got to read the New York Times. Like, it reads like source. It, re- it reads like vibe. <laughs> it's like, they love this stuff, you know, stereotypes. Then say the woman who uh, was in, the black woman who was in charge of the Jupiter mission, you know they have to, in order to feel good about themselves, black people have to look bad or be shamed, and that means that the idea has to be promoted that uh, black talent is rare. And at seventy-seven, I've seen tokens come and go. Uh, what happens is that uh, at some point they defy their sponsors and they're cast aside. In this world in which, in this culture in which. Black talent is presented as rare, mm-hmm. and black icons are few. Mm-hmm. Were you at all concerned about complicating the picture of one of those black icons? Oh, no, not at all. Uh, he's, my point was, he's an icon, and I'm an iconoclast. He does what he has to do, and I have to do what I have to do. But, I, but I'm not, I'm, I, there are a lot of, I think most of the comments about Ali in that book are favorable. I mean, chapter after chapter, about his triumphs in the ring, his, his philanthropy, and is changing from, uh, you know, uh, one of these guys who alienated people when he's a member of the Nation of Islam saying that interracial couples should be murdered. Uh, and other comments that were crazy. According to Emmanuel Stewart, he said, alien, alien. now he's a holy man. He criticized Malcolm X for looking like a holy man. Now he's a holy man. He criticized, he made fun of Joe Lewis for his disabilities, and now he's disabled. So, you know, now, now he's... Uh, has a more uh, universalist attitude. Now, for example, he said that if he had white blood, it's because one of his ancestors was raped by a slave master. Not true. His, uh, Abraham Brady, Abraham Grady came from Ireland. He's a poor guy. And uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Muhammad Ali went to Ireland to meet the Grady's. They all turned out. 50,000 people turned out. It was like a homecoming. And he acknowledges Irish heritage. And that made didn't make very much of the news in uh the United States because of the taboo of miscegenation. Mm-hmm. But it's a taboo. It's a, it's a taboo that's not observed because all of us, if you line 10 people up, on black people up on the street, they all look like they come from different races. I wonder what happened. Yeah. I just read that, uh, I just read, I'm doing a thing about uh, Robert E. Lee and Arlington, the Arlington Plantation, which was uh, owned by George Washington's stepson and uh, 50% of the slaves are biracial. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like a lot of taboos, really. It's, Observed in public. Yeah, observed much less in public. I'm telling you, man. I'm telling yeah. you. We, we like our heroes to be uncomplicated. Mm-hmm. We, we like them to be all good and no bad. Yeah. What do you hope people get out of your book? 
Well, I, I think that, uh, you know, they'll get something about the last three or four decades and cultural and political trends. Uh, they'll get points of view that have been left out. For example, uh, Emil Guillermo talks about the thriller Manila. People see that mostly as a boxing fight, a showdown between Fraser and uh, Ali. But he saw, he saw it as uh, bringing uh, the Philippines into the 20th century, no longer like the little brown cousins, but staging that fight. It gave a lot of publicity and showcased the Philippines. And he said, you know, Philippines had arrived because of that fight, just as uh, Mobutu was uh, set up because of uh, Ali fighting in Zaire. But, you know, he, he did hobnob with dictators. You know, that's sort of like forgiven. And he did become right wing and supported Ronald Reagan, which uh, was the beginning of a turning back of the advancement of black people, that regime. I mean, that was a devastating period for black Americans. So I think uh, that he was a geopolitical force. He was, he is, excuse me, an example of uh, how you can recover when you've been damaged. You end the book with an anecdote about Anne Hutchinson and, and Jonathan Edwards and, and saying that all of us have a bit of Zeus There's in no us. Gnostic idea that all of us have a bit of Zeus in us. But some have more Zeus than others. And, and you think that Ali does have that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think Kennedy had it. I mean, I, I remember Kennedy walked past us. 1959, me and my friend were standing there. He walked past us up. You could feel the aura. There's, you know, the guy was special. You could feel, the, feel something as he walked by that this guy. And I think uh, Ali has that too. And uh, they get away with things that the average person can't get away with. You know, they just have a little more Zeus. Well, Ishmael Reed, thank you so much. Well, I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. That was Ishmael Reed. As you can hear, he still has plenty to say. He's working on two other novels right now. You can keep an eye on his work at ishmaelreed.org. There are links there to buy his latest book, The Complete Muhammad Ali, which, of course, is also available in stores where they sell books. You can keep an eye on this show at tespodcast.com. That's where all my previous interviews live. You can subscribe to the show there or in iTunes or Stitcher. The first edition, though, is always published at tespodcast.com. This has been The Eastern Shore. I have been, and thanks to your generous donations to my Legal Defense Fund, continue to be Brock Winstead. Thank you for listening. Tinge.
I have been deprived my literary right, and I crave an audience. The form of the tragic autobiography is dead. Or will be soon, along with most of its authors. Goodbye, written word. So I have chosen this form, radio, to author my life. Not because my life is particularly worthy, but because it is hopefully, comically unworthy. Besides, tragedy isn't top 40, which is just as well.